cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 20th, 2012. We're going to start off today with a couple of thought questions. I'll explain in a second. and you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and as a result, we do the comparative work. We work from the assumption that, well, it's not really an assumption, but we work from the pre- uh, the premise, and this is a provable premise as far as I'm concerned, that the Bible, Scripture, is the Word of God. And I base this on Jesus Christ's opinion of the Bible, not my own. I basically come to the conclusion that, I, you know, I, when it comes to things spiritual, I'm not much of an authority. Uh, in fact, without an authority, there's not much I have to offer in the way of theological theologizing. Why? Well, because, I mean, I'm not God. I've never met him. I've never had Starbucks with him. I, you know, we've never hung out together, maybe went out to, you know, to Mexican food, you know, which I really think he would probably be into Mexican food, food just because it's so great. But that I mean that's just a speculation on my part. I mean, I, I don't know. But uh, so here's the questions. A couple of thought questions I want to lead off with. Thought question number one. Define success in the statement, that is a successful church. Define the word success. Okay. In fact, if we were to, you know, to basically, you know, go with that question, and I'm not giving you any other data, define the word success. That church is a successful church. Define the word successful. How are you saying that it's successful? And you're going, well, I would need to know more about that church. Well, I haven't given you any other information. That church is a successful church. 
But see, as soon as I put it in that in that in that way, asking the question to find the term successful, the question immediately comes up with, well, whose standard are you going to use to determine whether or not that church, whatever that church is, is a successful church? You see, as soon as we start talking about success or failure, when we talk about excellence or mediocrity, we immediately bring to bear into that conversation a set of criteria that will determine whether or not something is successful or not successful, whether something is exuding excellence in a particular concept or is an example of mediocrity or outright failure, if you would. So what if I were to tell you that the, that the majority of American evangelicals when it comes to determining whether or not that church, I don't know what that church is, but that church is successful or not successful, are guilty of importing in a false and non-biblical category of or rubric, if you would, standard of determining whether or not a church is successful or not. So here's the deal. I mean, there's a lot of ways we can determine whether that church, I don't know what that church is, but that church, whether or not that church is successful, I could look at it numerically. That church has a very rapid growth curve, you know, that there's a lot more members or people attending that church today than there were, well, last year or the year before that. And, you know, so that would be a determination. That church is successful because... It has numerical growth. Now, you, you would say, well, that's, see, that's a measure of success. Gr numerical growth is. But what if then I told you, well, that church is uh, is Jim Jones's church. I mean, they've had rapid growth, and everyone's getting ready to go to Guyana. Uh, you, <laughs> no, 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 no. Numerical growth in that situation doesn't equal success. Right, it doesn't. In fact, numerical growth... It, it, well, using a different standard doesn't equal success. It equals failure, abject failure on the part of other things, right? So we can't say that church is successful because it has numerical growth. So the question is, where are you going to get the standard? Who gets to decide the standard by which we say that church is successful? Okay, Does the world get to determine that? That, that that church is successful because the world says it's successful. When did the world get a vote in determining whether or not a church is successful? When did they get to set the standard for success or failure when it comes to the church? Since Jesus makes it clear that the world is hostile to Christianity and hostile to him, and his ways are not the ways of the world— then I, I, I have to say that when we say the sentence, that church is successful, that a worldly standard of success cannot be brought to bear if we're going to analyze success or failure in light of a biblical worldview, in light of what God has revealed. You see what I'm saying? So many times people throw this term out, success. That church is successful. That pastor is successful. That person is successful. And they are at that point alluding to a standard that doesn't have its origin in God's word. 
when Jesus says to an individual Christian or to a pastor, well done, thou good and faithful servant, what standard is Jesus referring to to determine success or failure when he says to a servant, well done, right? Now, the Apostle James, this would be the half-brother of Jesus, in his epistle lets, lets everybody know that pastors and teachers are going to be held to a more stringent standard. They will be judged more stringently on the Day of Judgment. W what do you think that more stringent standard looks like? What, what in that scenario... That is coming. It, this is not a hypothetical, okay? On the day of judgment, when a pastor stands or a teacher stands before God, what is the standard going to be? Numerical growth? Mm, doesn't seem like a very good standard, does it? Doesn't even remotely sound biblical, does it? Well... I would like to posit this idea that we, we need to start asking tougher questions. We need to ask the, the obvious question that comes up. When we say that X pastor or that church or that teacher is successful, that we immediately need to ask the question, by whose standard are they successful? By whose standard? Are we determining whether or not that pastor is a failure or that pastor is a success? Is it the world's standard? Is it a standard set by people who aren't even Christians? Is it a standard that's superficial? Is it a standard that is non-biblical? What's the biblical standard? Well, I would like to just basically posit the idea here that 2 Timothy chapter 4 gives us part of that standard, that a pastor is going to be judged or deemed successful or not successful. A true success or an abject failure in the kingdom of God. This is only part of the standard, but we, we see what's going on here. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, because all scripture is God-breathed. This is God-breathed scripture here. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead at, by, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So, aha, we've got judgment language. We've got standard language here. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Okay, so here's the idea that a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. So if Pastor Timothy were alive today, and here's the deal, is, is that every pastor is a Pastor Timothy. This applies to all pastors, every man who holds the pastoral office, right? Who is a called and ordained servant of the Word of God. 
that they are to preach the word, to teach sound doctrine. You can say that part of the standard is not tickling, itching ears, not giving people what they want to hear or preaching to suit the passions of people, but preaching and teaching God's word in season and out of season. Out of season dictates something very important. If a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, if a time is coming, maybe it's now, that uh, people will not endure God's word rightly preached, that preaching the word would result in not numerical growth within your congregation, but would result in literally the opposite. Because people will gather for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions, teachers who will scratch their itching ears, that will not teach sound doctrine, that by doing what God the Holy Spirit has commanded here, that it would result not in growth, but it would literally result in shrinkage. It would result in people leaving a congregation. Okay? That being the case, by the world's standard of success, that pastor would be branded an abject failure. Everybody in the world, especially those with a business mind, who understand that it's the bottom line, you got to grow, you got to turn a profit, would look at that pastor and say, that pastor is a failure. His picture would appear at fail blog, right? But the world isn't going to have a say on the day of judgment. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ will be the one whom that pastor must stand before. Jesus Christ is going to be the judge, not the world, not Wall Street, um, not your local newspaper or anybody else. The person whom your pastor will have to give an account is Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the crucified and risen Savior of the world, second person of the Holy Trinity, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one who inspired Paul to write these words. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, Jesus, when he returns and judges the living and the dead, pastors will be expected and they will be judged by whether or not they preached the word, taught sound doctrine, reproved, rebuked, and exhorted regardless of whether or not the church grew or shrank. Because there are times when God's word and hearing it will be in vogue, it'll be in season, and there will be other times, like now, when preaching the word 
will not be in season and will be the very thing that people do not want to hear. And because they don't want to hear it, they're going to gather pastors who will tell them what they want to hear. And those churches will grow. But those pastors, even though they're successful by the world's standard of success, are abject failures in the eyes of Jesus Christ who is the only one who decides the standard by which a church is either successful or not successful. The one who decides whether a pastor is a successful pastor or a failure. You see what I'm saying? So when we ask the question, when we ask the question, how, when we say the sentence, that church is successful, What standard are you using to determine success or failure in that sentence? If the standard doesn't agree with what God's word says, your standard is false. And that church that you deem to be successful may, in fact, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, be a synagogue of Satan, may, in fact, be an abject failure because Jesus himself has made it clear. God himself has made it clear that a pastor is to preach the entire full counsel of the word of God and to preach and teach sound doctrine and not to preach in a way that, well, suits people's passions and scratches itching ears. So when we say that church is successful, numerical growth biblically, is not the standard. Something to think about. Now, I said that I was going to be talking about, well, asking two questions. The next one I'm going to ask is similar. It's related. And we'll, we'll discuss it, well, later in this hour. Here's the question. Um, when you say that behavior or that thought or that action or that non-action is a sin, Whose standard are you using to determine whether or not it's a sin? And you're thinking, I already know where this is going. Of course you do, because you can see that the two are related. When we make statements of success or failure, sinful or not sinful, we have to immediately make reference to a standard. And if that standard isn't found in God's word, then your, your standard is just an opinion. You and I don't get to determine what a sin is or what a sin isn't. Uh, we That's way above our pay grade. You and I don't get to determine the standard of success or not success when it comes to pastors. Again, that's way above our pay grade. We must look to an objective standard. And that standard is what determines what is sinful and what is not sinful. You know, keep in mind, we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we're going to, uh, well, <laughs> take a listen to uh, Patricia King and James Gall talking about God encounters. And I want you to watch what they do with the biblical passages here. Well, a biblical passage that they reference. Um, it's This is uh, what Pastor Brian Wolfmuller refers to as the um, heresy two-step. You, you give a verse to create the impression that what you're about to be embarking in is a biblical teaching. 
and then you immediately back up from the verse and then you shift to uh, shimmy to the left or shimmy to the right and you're no longer on that verse but the verse serves as basically cover you know that it's it's a fig leaf if you would to cover up the what's about to take place the sin that's about to take place and we're going to see that today with Patricia King and James Gall talking about God encounters. Then we're going to uh, switch gears, and uh, I got a news story out of the Christian Post. and The headline is, Joel Osteen's success credited to not being preachy or theological. And you're going, oh, I know where you're going with this. Of course you do. I telegraphed my punch. We'll take a look at that. And then what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time carefully examining the media. Well, the, what happened with Kirk Cameron and his statements and the controversy that regarding his statements regarding homosexuality. We'll take a look at what he said on Piers Morgan's program. And then we'll also see what he said on the Today Show uh, just a day or two ago. So we'll do that. And then in uh, hour number two, we're going to be doing a sermon review from Northridge Church in Plymouth, Michigan, entitled The Script uh, slash The Helpers by Brad, by Brad Powell there. And boy, I got to tell you, this is, a, this is an example of uh, preaching for people's passions. I'll explain that when we get into hour number two. So I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, uh, if uh, the weather permits in your neck of the woods. It's been really warm here in central Indiana, I got to tell you. I mean, it's in the 80s. I mean, the spring has sprung. I mean, all the trees are in full bloom. I mean, it's it's gorgeous. It's absolutely, absolutely fantastic weather. In fact, it feels kind of like late May rather than, you know, late March. But, uh, you know, it, it was a mild winter here. Uh, and I think that we're completely done with the cold weather. We might have some, you know, you know, last hurrah of colder weather coming through, but not any time in the foreseeable future, but I, I'm off. T- I'm off topic here. But again, so fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather permits. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to become enslaved to a good gift that God has given us. That's silly. And of course, if you would like to, you know, work while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. But do keep in mind that this program has been proven to uh, result in, in in loss of productivity. So, you you know, if you have to actually produce something and you want to listen to Fighting for the Faith at the same time, your boss may not be happy with the results. So, I, you know, I'm just saying. So here we go. Let's dive into the program proper. All right, so uh, here's a question I have for you. Um, have you ever had a God encounter? <sighs> yeah, um... Maybe I should let Patricia King and James Gall explain. Here they are. Welcome to Everlasting Love. My name's Patricia King. I'm glad that you've joined us for today's program. We're going to share about God encounters. Would you like one? Would I like one? Are you handing them out like candy? You're entitled to one because... Really? I'm entitled to a God encounter. I have never read that in the Bible. Jesus paid a price for you to know and encounter God. With me today, I have my... No, no, no doubt I will be encountering God face-to-face someday, but that doesn't mean that I have a right to one today. Good friend and guest, Prophet James Gall. It's wonderful to have you with us, James, again. Thank you. You're one of our favorite guests Thank on the you. program, and you always carry such deep insights, and especially on this subject, because you're the author of the book on God Encounters that you and your late yeah. uh, wife, Michael Ann Gall, uh, prepared, and it's got lots of testimonies, lots of teaching, and um, 
So we're looking forward to hearing some yeah. insights from you awesome. on God encounters. That's great. I wanted to share, first of all, a scripture out of Exodus 33 about Moses. Now watch this. Okay, this is the uh, the first part of the heresy two-step, okay? You, you, you put the verse down first and you stand on it. Like, okay, here we go. We're going to... Uh, we're going to be preaching from the Bible. Well, this is a biblical teaching that we got going on here. And no sooner do you read the text that you back up from it so that the you know person watching you doesn't perceive that you're no longer standing on the text. And then you shimmy to the left or you shimmy to the right. This is the heresy two-step. First step here, lay down a biblical verse. That's good. Uh, who encountered God. And, right. you know, he was passionate, passionate about the Lord. There he is out in the wilderness, yeah. and right there in the wilderness, in that dry and dusty wilderness, right. he establishes a place right. to encounter God. And it says in verse 7 of Exodus 33, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Right. A good Now notice, here, here's the problem. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. Nowhere does the scripture tell you for you to go and establish a place outside of wherever in order for you to have a space for God encounters. All it is is describing historically what took place in the wilderness between the Exodus and uh, and the, the the children of Israel's uh, taking of the Promised Land uh, under the headship of uh, the generalship of uh, Joshua. But so this is a description, not a prescription distance from the camp yeah. i guess from all the busyness and everything right, right. and he called it the tent of meeting yeah. or maybe we could call it the tent of encounter Absolutely. and everyone who sought the lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp now then it says in verse 9 whenever moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the lord would speak with moses Look at that. that's and encounter the lord would speak with Moses directly yeah now where does it say that we're supposed to go and set up a tent of meeting so that God would want to speak to us directly where is that prescribed answer it's not this is a descriptive text not a prescriptive text I know it's, I love it it's awesome it's he comes in this with God pillar of cloud yeah. and the voice of God Amen. comes to him and oh and he had this every day, James. Yeah, every awesome. day he went and sought That's the true. Lord. You see, if we just go to the Lord, the That's Lord right. will come to us, That's right? right. And, uh, huh? uh, and then it says in verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Now that's, that's right. encounter. Absolutely. Well, sure it is. Again, this is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Now, you've had... Now the, this okay. Now the transition takes place in the heresy two step. They've read this biblical text and they've kind of ruminated with it. You know, wow, look at Moses had these face to face. Oh, this is awesome. And and now somehow that's some supposedly setting the stage here for what's coming next because we're done with the word of God, uh, at least in the Bible. And now it's time to discuss, well, James Gall's personal God encounters, because, you know, James Gall is just like Moses. Lots of encounters. Yeah. But what is your most, um, <laughs> you know, what, what is your most impacting encounter with God that you've ever had? You know, I had to really chew on this because there is a variety that I can pick from and different kinds I've had. But there is one that outstands all the rest. 
and uh, it's back a few years, and it marked my life, and it still marks me to this day. I had set aside a whole week. I was going to go to a, a conference gathering, and it was a setup. And the Holy Spirit, at the last minute, told me not to go, but my calendar was now free, so I had a whole week set aside. Perfect. So I took it to spend time just with the Lord. And so I went to this little chapel. We're in the Jesus People Movement. We'd spend a lot of every day, we would worship and pray there in this chapel. Right. And so I went back to this sacred place to me. Mm-hmm. Like it was like this. a tent of meeting. It was my tent of meeting. And I went back to that place. Wow, he had his own tent of meeting just like Moses. Uh-huh. And I'm on a little kneeler bench kind of thing. I'm just contemplating, worshiping the Lord in quiet communion. And I feel like someone opens the door and comes in. But there was no one who came not in physical body, it seemed. And I just remained there in worship, but I could feel the presence of someone who came in. But there was such a presence of destiny, at the same time fear of the Lord, that I didn't... A presence of destiny, wow, that sounds important. ...really look up. And then the voice of the Lord came, and it didn't come just in my heart, it came like that was there with Moses. I mean, the Lord spoke to me in the chapel. And he said, just like Moses, mm-hmm. to me, stand up. Now, just a minute, was this an audible voice? Yeah, it was external audible, wow. not internal, but external. And what did it, it sound like? It was like a voice of a friend, really, was what it was. It was like a voice of a, it was a, voice of a man, but it was a voice of a friend, not, not overly familiar, but a voice of a friend. Right. And it was very inviting. Right. wooing, drawing. And it spoke to me and it said, stand up. And then I go, okay. So I stood up. And I'm like in the fear of God. And then this voice speaks to me again. Now, how do we know that you aren't just experiencing like low blood sugar at this point? I mean, you know, why should I believe that this is really God? How how do we know this wasn't Satan in disguise? Hmm? And it says, step out into the aisle. And now I stepped out into the aisle, and the fear of the Lord was just permeating this room, this chapel. Mm, okay. And then I looked, and I have a visitation, you would call it, to where Yeshua Jesus was standing in the aisle, right in front of me. Wow, yeah. Uh-huh. How do we know that you hadn't had too much to drink or maybe you had, you know, swiped your wife's oxycotton prescription? I mean, there's I mean there's a lot of things. I mean, if you did you take an orange and and did it go away, you know? Oh. It was astounding. You know, I read an article last week that said that drinking coffee can cause hallucinations. Are you sure this wasn't a over-caffeinated uh, hallucination brought on by, you know, too much Starbucks that morning. What did he look like? You know, I did see the full form of him. But the thing, the only thing really that stayed with me the whole time, all these years, was his eyes. He had penetrating eyes that were just filled with deep, deep, deep love. Wow. They were, like the Revelations, chapter 1, they were a flame of fire. 
But they were, as I looked into his eyes, they drew, they drew me to himself. Based on the fact that you've mishandled the Exodus text, I'm not thinking that this was the biblical Jesus. I'm going to vote for the, you know, this is probably the other guy in disguise. Just a, just a minute. Okay, yeah. a flame of fire. I'm trying to picture this. Yeah. Um, now, as you're yeah. looking at those eyes, as you recall this, like, yes. did they have color to them? Or, like, was there actual flames coming out? Or was it well, like... it's like, it was passionate fire. Wow. Passionate fire, yeah. I don't know what the word passionate does to fire. I mean, that's the modifier, passionate. Okay, um, passionate fire. Nothing's coming to mind here. But it was, see, there was an invitation Mm -hmm. in it, in his eyes. So an invitation inside of the passionate fire, okay. I I can't, I can tell you what color, but that wasn't what was important. What was important was his eyes were full of drawing love. Wow. The eyes were full of drawing love. Drawing love. And they, it was an invitation that was totally irresistible. Wow. It was irresistible love was the color of his eyes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Irresistible love was the color of his eyes. You know, um, that's like the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Yeah, there's a noun. There's a verb. Um, you can analyze it grammatically, um, but it doesn't make any sense. Irresistible love was the color of his eyes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Profound there. Um, if I were to go and get like you know a, a large box of Crayola markers, what color would irresistible love be in the spectrum? Would it be a, a red color, a blue color, um, maybe in the greens and yellows? Irresistible love is the color of his eyes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I looked into his eyes. I love that. Eyes. Love has a color. The color of his wow. eyes were irresistible love. Wow. And as I looked into... Yeah, I feel like I'm listening to Bill and Ted. Y'all remember this? Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston. Who is Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We're in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. Yeah, that's who I feel like I'm listening to right now. Okay. To his eyes. I could only do what Isaiah and many others and that have done and all the prophets. Here am I, Lord. And he spoke to me and he said, step forward. And I took a little six-inch step forward because, again, this wasn't Mother May I. Right. This was the creator of the right. universe. And I took a six inch step. He said, step forward again. I took another little step. Step forward again. And now I'm standing. It was just a little taller than I. And and I was standing as though face to face with this visitation encounter of Yeshua Jesus. Yeah, this kind of Christianity doesn't sound like it's much different from a bad LSD trip. And then one last time he spoke to me and he said, step 
forward. Wow. And I took the step in faith and obedience. And when I did, the open visitation departed, but I believe that there was a reason. I stepped into, into him, him and he stepped in a greater dimension into me. And it was like wow. a hand in a glove. Wow. Yeah, whoa, dude, man, yeah, far out. And it was a perfect fit. Yeah. Perfect, perfect fit. Weird. And then out of adoration and worship, I'm down on my knees and there's a vision of two witnesses and like they would be like overseers or apostle and prophet mm, and what, they're looking down was there a third eagle and you know I'm just asking down on me and they were people that I actually was getting to know but didn't have a great in-depth relationship at the time one was prophetic seer prophet Bob Jones and the other was Mahesh Shabda and they ended up what? <laughs> Becoming two of the people that primarily really shaped and impacted my life. Yeah, Bob Jones having a profound influence on men like Todd Bentley, too. Oh, okay. Mahesh Shavda is well known for lots of encounters Absolutely. and releasing of the power of God right. worldwide. And, right. of course, Bob Jones, one of the most accurate seer, seer prophets. prophets. Most accurate, yeah. Well, the Bible demands 100% uh, accuracy. In the world today. So it was like sometimes those things are symbolic, I yes. guess, too. But in your case, in it was... In this case, it was literal yeah. because the Lord was appointing two mentors in the anointing God encounters. Right. Yeah, well, if Jesus was pointing you to those two, um, that wasn't the biblical Jesus. That's for sure Satan in a Jesus suit. You want to run from those guys. And then there was a golden pot of honey, it seemed like. <laughs> what? Is this the Winnie the Pooh portion of the vision? But a golden pot, a pitcher. It tipped. It was like over my head. Where there were heffalumps and woozles, too. I could actually feel two drops of golden anointing hit my head. Oh, man. Heffalumps and woozles. Heffalumps and woozles. Heal honey. Beware. Beware. They're black. They're out. They're out. They're out. They're, They're, out. They're in. They're out. They're all about. They're far. They're near. They're gone. They're here. They're quick and slick. They're insincere. Beware. Beware. Be very, very aware. A heffalump or woozle is very unusual. A heffalump or woozle's very sly. 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 They come in ones and twosles, but if they so choosles, before your eyes you'll see them multiply. Clump, clump. They're extraordinary, so better be wary. Because they come in every shape and size. If honey's what you covet, you'll find that they love it because they so up the thing you prize. Yeah, uh, weird that um, James Gall's recounting of this God encounter is just about as strange as the dream sequence from Winnie the Pooh regarding Huffalumps and Woozles. Whew. And then the voice of the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, Today. I am giving you two drops of my golden anointing. Wow. If you will be faithful with this, one drop is for you, one drop you are to give to your wife. And he said, then there will be a day I will pour, pour 
the golden anointing upon your head. Wow. Yeah, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's just creepy. But the key was it all centered in Jesus. I know. Really? And how is that possible? Because you're not saying anything about the biblical Jesus. I wasn't like chasing after some gift. Oh, no. Yeah, that, see, that proves it's true right there. Yeah. I was chasing after the man, Christ Jesus. Well, why weren't you reading his word? You can find him right there. And he came and he appeared to me. I, I don't think so. I stepped into him and he stepped into me. Probably not. You know, in the Colossians, the book of Ephesians talks about Christ in us yeah. is the hope, hope of, of glory. glory. We have a mutual friend, worship leader, songwriter, yeah. uh, wonderful woman of God, Joanne McFadder. Right. And she actually wrote a song called Step Into Me. And That's when you were sharing awesome. your encounter, I was reminded of that song. It's beautiful. Step Into Me. Yeah. And what could be better in any encounter oh. than to to engage with That's Jesus? Right. Because every encounter has lots of elements to yes. it, and they're all exciting. And this anything, one had many elements yeah, to and it. anything that comes from God is exciting. Yeah. But it's all around Him, as you shared. It's all around you him. know, God wants you to encounter Him, and you can. He is with you right now. He, okay. Yeah. I'm officially creeped out right now. I'm going, whoo boy, I don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus. That Jesus scares me because it has doesn't even remotely sound like the biblical Jesus. Weird. And no, the Bible doesn't prescribe for me those kind of God encounters where I can experience, you know, the the color of passionate love or or the golden anointing that sounds a lot like a Winnie the Pooh, Huffalump and Woozle dream sequence. Anyway, if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement, while in a beanbag, eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, anybody who tells you that passionate love is a color and that this happened during a God encounter, yeah, you need to run. I run quick. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 here we go next segment when i'm feeling lonely sad as i can be all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea what makes me happy We're doing a Joel Osteen update. <laughs> okay, from the uh, Christian Post, the headline reads, Joel Osteen's success credited to not being preachy or theological, written by Stoyan Zymoff. Boy, that's a name. Uh, but uh, yeah, here's the deal. Um, remember what I was talking about in the monologue earlier in the program? Define the word success in, this, in the sentence. Joel Osteen's success credited to not being preachy or theological. Whose standard is being used and applied here when it, in order to deem Joel Osteen successful? Is he successful by any biblical standard? Uh, probably not. Um, is he successful by worldly standards? Oh, yeah, in spades. I mean, the guy sells bazillions of books. He's... He breaks in gazillions of dollars. He's got, st- I mean, new, I mean, he's got the largest mega church in the planet, right? But, um, yeah, those are not standards of success that are, that pastors are judged by. Seriously, I mean, really, do you think that when uh, Joel Osteen stands before Jesus Christ, he's going to, you know, he's going to stand before Jesus Christ, and is Jesus going to say, oh, man, 
Um, I am so glad to see you. You are the most successful pastor of the kingdom of God in all of history. I just, you know, I, oh man. In fact, tell you what, let, let me move over, you know, and you, know, you want to sit here, you know, on, on the throne here, you know, try it out. That's not what's going to happen. Okay. The reason why is because worldly standards of success will not be what Jesus uses to judge the uh, Joel Osteen's ministry. The question is, did Joel Osteen faithfully week in and week out preach the word? Did he do it in season and out of season? Or did he scratch itching ears and, well, preach to suit people's passions? Well, if that's the case, then his numerical success is not attributed to, well, the same standard that Jesus would apply. So he's not successful. You, you get what I'm saying here. But anyway, Stoyan writes, he says, The latest stop on Lakewood Church, Pastor Joel Osteen's Night of Hope tour, brought him to the Times Union Center in Albany, his first visit to upstate New York, where 12,000 people gathered last week for an inspirational sermon and praised the minister for not being preachy. <laughs> in other words, the reason why he's successful is because, yeah, this, this guy doesn't do the thing that Jesus told pastors to do, preach the word in season and out of season. He's not preaching. No, 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 no. He, he's, he preaches to suit our passions. He scratches itching ears. So he's rewarded with numerical success by worldly standards, um, you know, and uh, that because he's not preachy. Well, of course, that's the reason why he's successful. But he's only successful if you're applying the standards of success and failure that the world applies, not the standard that Jesus applies, right? So Osteen has arguably the biggest congregation in the United States. The 49-year-old Texas pastor brings together 40,000 people weekly to at his Lakewood church. Oh, well, see, that's successful right there. 40,000. See, that's success. Only if you are using the world standard of success, not the biblical standard. And he has been a big hit touring around the country as well. The Night of Hope events, which he leads alongside of his wife, Victoria Osteen, have brought him even more media attention. But along with it has come many questions and comments about his style of ministering. Quote, he has a practical message. He speaks in a personal way. He's not preachy or theological, noted Pastor Phil Muncy of Life Church in Irvine, California, highlighting the straightforward but powerful appeal of Osteen's sermons. A TimesUnion.com report revealed that Muncie has traveled for many years with Osteen and is chairman at Osteen's Champions Network, a group of 500 pastors nationwide who are part of the Osteen team. Osteen sermons are often are often focused heavily on encouragement and inspiration, and his intent is to make everyone in his audience feel like they are blessed by God regardless of what is currently going on in their lives. Oh, isn't that just great? No, no wonder he's successful by the world standards. But is he successful by the standard that the really the only one that really is going to matter at the end of the day, uh, the standard that Jesus is going to judge him by? I mean, I mean, yeah, he's got all kinds of numerical growth, and he makes people feel good. But that's not the standard that uh, that will be applied to Joel Osteen. When he stands before Jesus, that's part of that standard is found in Second Timothy chapter four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. See, Jesus gets to decide. Jesus is going to judge whether or not Joel Osteen really was successful or whether he was an abject failure. Okay, so that being the case, Joel Osteen's job 
in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and judge the living and the and the dead, his job is to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Yikes. With complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure. Sound doctrine, but having itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, I mean, here's the question. Is Joel Osteen successful? Well, it depends on whose standard you're applying to answer the question. If you are applying the world standards, well, Joel Osteen is a raging success. But if you apply the standard of Scripture found here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Joel Osteen is an abject, complete, an utter failure. Think about it. Whether or not he's successful or a failure depends on whose standard you apply, the world's or Christ's. <clears throat> Something to think about. All right, moving along here. All right, from the Piers Morgan CNN website, we're going to be playing part of an interview that James Cameron did with Piers Morgan and then a follow-up interview that he did on the Today Show just really recently. And we're going to ask, we're kind of use the same thing. You know, here's the deal. Is homosexuality a sin? Well, answer, it depends on whose standard you're applying. Okay, now here's the deal. I, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Deciding what is and isn't a sin is way above my pay grade. What, I mean, seriously. I mean, I wasn't there when uh, Adam and Eve were created. I wasn't. I, 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 you know, Jesus didn't consult me and say, you know, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this, these Ten Commandments here. What do you think of them? You, you have any input? You think you might want to, you know, take some of the, you know, change some of the verb? You know, I, I, God never comes to me and asks me for counsel. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, it's serious. I mean, so when it comes to things like being a sin or not a sin, I am so not qualified to make a decision along those lines. I just, I'm not. And, you know, chances are you aren't either. Um, so uh, if you're God, then you're qualified. If you're not God, then you're not qualified. So tell me, are you qualified to decide what is and what isn't a sin? Mm, probably not. Um, <laughs> I, in fact, I'm willing to stake my life on it. Yeah, I, you know, I'm willing to bet. So l listen carefully to this exchange between Piers Morgan and J uh, Kirk Cameron and uh, see if you can figure out what's going on here or what's going wrong here. Here we go. If I asked you, for example, what your view of gay marriage is, what would you say? Well, go ahead and ask me. What is your view of gay marriage? I feel like I just got imported into the Christine O'Donnell interview you did back in August. Now, notice, notice the question. What is your view of gay marriage? Piers Morgan is asking Kirk Cameron the question, well, you know, what's your opinion? Now, last time I checked in a free country, you're allowed to have an opinion, right? Well, that, I mean, that was an interview where she, she wouldn't talk about stuff in her own book. I know. I, I'm, just, I know. I'm just saying, when you, these issues are interesting to me about what you would tell your kids who you're trying to protect, for example, yes. would you tell them that gay marriage is a sin? Okay, this is another question now. Now, here's the deal. Two questions in a row without quite having an answer, okay? First question is, what's your opinion? Second question is, would you tell your children that homosexuality is a sin? Okay, now here's the deal, okay? One, 
you know, it's, it is an opinion. You know, take your take your you know. You know, take your poison, pick your poison. Uh, you know, an opinion is an opinion and is an opinion. I mean, my opinion about something is one thing. His opinion is another. And that person's opinion is another. But we're all, we all have opinions. But as soon as you slip into the question, would you tell your children homosexuality is a sin? This changes the nature of the question dramatically. Because if we're going to call something a sin, keep in mind that by doing so now we've brought god into the into the equation the reason being this is that sin is a category that deals with behavior that god either approves of or condemns that god says is okay or god says is an abomination okay so now by calling it a sin we've brought god into the equation and that requires us to look at what god has revealed what is i mean what is a sin what isn't a sin it's above my pay grade i don't get to choose these things god is the one who gets to reveal it and i don't my opinion regarding it just really doesn't matter as a christian i'm not entitled to my own opinion as to what is and isn't a sin as a christian my job is to believe and to say the same thing that God has said. By the way, um, are you familiar with the uh, the the uh, the word confess? Okay, when somebody confesses their sin, the Greek word, by the way, for confess is homologeo. Homologeo means to say the same thing. Now, this principle applies also when we confess our faith. We're we're trying to do that when we confess the the the, the Christian faith. We're saying the same thing. Our goal is to say the same thing that God has said, to say the same thing as God has revealed. So when we say a certain thing is a sin, what we're doing is we're saying the same thing that God has said. Our goal is to not say something deviant or different than what God has said. Our goal is to say the same thing. So now let's continue. I would tell my children as as I, I tell them what I believe myself and... Uh... Dealing with these social issues, whether it's uh, abortion what, or gay what, what, marriage, what do you believe? I believe that marriage was defined uh, by God a long time ago. Marriage is notice the appeal to a standard outside of himself, almost as old as dirt, and it was defined in the garden between Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, for life, uh, till death do you part. So I would never attempt to try to redefine marriage, and I don't think anyone else should either. So do I support uh, the idea of gay marriage? No. I don't. Do you think homosexuality is a sin? Do you think? Do you think? Answer, this is real simple. I don't get to think along these lines. We're bringing God into the conversation. The question is, does he think it's a sin? I think that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's unnatural. I think that it's, it's, it's detrimental and uh, ultimately destructive to so many uh, of the foundations of civilization. So what do you do if one of your six kids says, Dad... Bad news. Notice what, he, you know, he, the question is, is it a sin? I think it's unnatural. Now, the Bible says it's unnatural, but where he's starting to he slip here, and listen, you don't, don't, don't read into this. Kirk Cameron's a great guy. He's a good Christian man, um, and he's basically being, you know, put on the, on the wall. He's not been given a cigarette. He has not been given a blindfold, but he's being shot at. I mean, that's what's going on here. And, you know, this is not an easy situation, and the best of Christians could easily misstep here, okay? But always keep in mind, the question, is homosexuality a sin, is answered ultimately not by me, 
and my opinions, or Kirk Cameron and his opinions, or Piers Morgan and his opinions, or an opinion poll. The standard is set by God because sin is a category that deals with relationship to what God deems okay or what God has said is forbidden. Plain and simple. So let's take a look real quick. Uh, real, If you have your Bible, we'll take a look at Romans chapter 1. We'll look at a couple of passages here. And what we'll do is we're going to let God tell us what his standard is. Not my opinion, but what God has said. Okay. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay? So God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are all synonyms for the category known as sin. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools." They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So let me summarize this. Okay. God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And here's here's how it goes. Because you refuse to worship and serve God, the one true God, you refuse to acknowledge him as true, and you in your unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, as a judgment, God is going to turn you over to the lusts and impurity of your hearts, to the dishonoring of your body, because you exchange the truth of God for a lie. In other words, this is a judgment. So for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. You can say unnatural. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Hmm. So there's the words right there, natural and unnatural, right? And it isn't me or Kirk Cameron who sets that standard of natural versus unnatural. It's God himself in his word, and this is what he has revealed. So is homosexuality unnatural? Absolutely. God's word says that it is. And there's more that we can add to this, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Again, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Is it a sin? Yeah, not only is it a sin, 
it, along with all the other sins listed here, bar people from entrance into the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Christians, they were those things. They are not those things. They were doing that, but they are no longer. They are forgiven and washed. So there's hope. Jesus Christ bled and died for these sins. You see, if you're going to speak the truth, speak the truth. Don't give us your opinions. Tell us what God has revealed. So let's continue. He's I'm gay. I'd sit down and I'd have a heart-to-heart with them, just like you would with your kids. I, I'd talk yeah, if, to I them said about... that, if one of my sons said that, I'd say, that's great, son, as long as you're happy. What would you say? Well, I wouldn't say that's great, son, as long as you're happy. I'm going to say, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of issues that we need to wrestle through in our life, and just because you feel one way doesn't mean we should act on everything that we feel. But it's and yet, not only some on... people would say that, Telling kids that being... Notice he's saying, wait a second, just because you have a feeling doesn't mean that that's right. Right. Very unpostmodern of Kirk Cameron. Gay is a sin, or getting married is a sin, or whatever. That in itself is incredibly destructive and damaging in a country where seven states now have legalized it. Yes, but... Yes, seven states have legalized gay marriage, so it must be, it must be okay, right? Well, since when did state legislatures have the right to deem what is and what isn't a sin. Hmm? But you have to also understand that, that you yourself are using a standard of morality to say that telling people such and such of a, of a behavior is sinful. Yep. Um, uh, you, you're using a standard of morality to make that statement and say that that is terribly destructive. So everyone is going to have a standard against no, no, which no, no, they... No, no, listen, listen, I'm not an American. They, I'm making the point that seven states in America have now legalized gay marriage. So what? Does that mean that God's word gets to be changed? Oh, God says, oh, I'm sorry. I was just waiting for this time to take that out of the Bible. Well, Piers, you're, you're, you're speaking to a man who is a Christian, and I believe that all of us are sinful. Uh, I, 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 would, I could stand at the top of the list and say that I need a Savior, and I need an overhaul of the heart more right than on, anyone. Right on. And so that's what I teach my kids. I teach them the values that I hold dear. I treasure the God that loves me and, and forgives me of my sin. And I would teach that to my children uh, as well as having a wonderful relationship with them that my wife and I work on every single day. All right, so there you go. That was uh, his comments on Piers Morgan's program. And uh, then on the Today Show, he uh, he addressed the issue. Uh, he, yeah, listen to this interview. Cameron charmed audiences as the teenage heartthrob and troublemaker Mike Seaver on the 1980s sitcom Growing Pains. Well, now he's out with a new project, a movie called Monumental, tracing what he believes is the secret to what has made America... Great. Kirk Cameron, good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning. Well, you know, I, I, before we get to this movie, which I know you're very passionate about, you know I'm going to ask you about this firestorm that you set off with this, with this topic, um, uh, uh, on the topic of gay marriage, when you talked to CNN's uh, Pierce Morgan, who asked you if you think homosexuality is a sin, and you said, quote, I think that it's unnatural. I think that detrimental and ultimately destructive to so many of the foundations of civilization. Okay, so he gave his opinion. He should have pointed to the standard. But hey, listen, the, st the standard itself, God's word, reveals that homosexuality is unnatural. In fact, 
Those passions are a judgment from God that God sends for those who refuse to worship him as God and suppress the truth. I've got to get your response. Many people are suggesting that this is hate speech. Uh, are you encouraging people to feel hate towards gay people? Oh, well, now listen to the standard. This is hate speech. Hmm. Hate speech. So if you say that homosexuality is a sin and you say it's unnatural, that's hate speech. And by saying that, you're encouraging people to hate homosexuals. Hmm. Weird, because the Christian standard says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Calling homosexuality what it is, a sin, is the same as calling adultery what it is. A sin. It's the same as calling what thieving, thievery is, a sin. And God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So from a Christian point of view, it's not hateful or encouraging people to hate by calling a sin a sin. In fact, it's very loving because by pointing out that it's a sin, you then point them to their crucified and risen Savior who bled and died for those sins. Absolutely not. Of course not. No, I, I, I love all people. I hate no one. And, you know, when, when you take a subject and you reduce it to something like a four-second soundbite and a check mark on a, on a ballot, I, I think that that's inappropriate and insensitive. Uh, the truth is these are issues that are very personal. These are things that need to be discussed in the context, I believe, best uh, in, a, in a personal friendship with someone who's asking the question. And so when things get edited down to that, I think it, it doesn't reflect, uh, certainly didn't reflect my full heart on the matter. Do you feel, you feel any responsibility saying words like that, that might encourage people to feel that it's okay to treat, mistreat gay people? Really? <clears throat> Excuse me. Hang on a second here, Kirk. I, I've got to step in. Excuse me? Calling homosexuality a sin somehow encourages people to mistreat others? I, I mean, evil Knievel could not jump that chasm of logic. The two do not follow. Are there people who mistreat homosexuals? Yes, there are. Are there people who do that in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity? Yes, there are. But it's not because of what Christianity teaches. It's despite what Christianity teaches. In fact, mistreating a homosexual is contrary to the gospel itself and is not compatible with biblical Christianity. And just simply saying that homosexuality is a sin or is unnatural does not, does not logically then lead to, oh, well, now we got to string up homosexuals and lynch them the way they did, you know, black people in the South, and we got to be violent against them. No, the violence was done to Jesus Christ. He suffered the wrath of God. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was crucified. He bled. He died for all sins, including sins of homosexuality. Nobody should mistreat anybody. Uh, uh, homosexuals should not be mistreated. Uh, heterosexuals should not be mistreated. Bisexuals should not be mistreated. So, um, you know, what I think this reveals is that... Uh, it, the, the interviewer that asked me these questions even used the words with me, I think your views are destructive. Mm -hmm. So what that shows me is that all of us uh, who really think deeply about social... So if you hold these views, you're destructive. That That's the world's standard now. You hearing it? It's there on the Today Show. It was there on Piers Morgan's program. 
It's been there in the firestorm. The world's standard is is that if you say homosexuality is a sin, if you say that that redefining marriage to include homosexuals is not good, it's bad, you are being destructive to to society and to homosexuals. That's the standard. You see when you listen with discernment, oftentimes it requires you to listen to what's the standard being appealed to regarding right and wrong, good and bad, uh, sin and not sin. And the, the always the question, question should come up is, is that since when did the world, when did society get to decide what is and what isn't a sin, what marriage is and what it isn't? Answer, it's above the pay grade of the President of the United States. It's above the pay grade of any state legislature or, or Senate. It's above the pay grade of any nation state to decide what is and what isn't a sin, what is and isn't natural, what is and isn't marriage. It's above the pay grade of every human being, of every society, of every nation, of every state. That that is clearly in the ground that only God gets to decide. God is the one who sets that standard. God is the one who reveals that standard. We either say, yes, God, you're right. I will say the same thing as you, or you stay in rebellion and sin against God. And when you do that, you're saying, I don't want to be forgiven for my sin because I refuse to see it as a sin. And so you will remain unforgiven. That's the verdict of heaven. All right, we are up on our second break, and uh, we're gonna when we come back, we're gonna be doing a sermon review, <sighs> talking about standards. Wow, yeah. You know. <laughs> anyway, what, you don't want to miss the sermon review when we get back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. 
Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. And back up to the Detroit area. Bum, 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 bum. All right, here we go. The good, the bad, and, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Northridge Church, Plymouth, Michigan. Brad Powell presiding. The name of the sermon is The Script. That's the sermon series, The Script. This individual sermon is called The Helpers. I don't even want to tell you what this sermon does. You you actually have to hear it to believe it. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Here's the setup. Are you ready? Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen it? You immediately know there's something wrong because, wait a second, God's your co-pilot, right? Now, what if I told you that Jesus plays a supporting role in my movie? He's there to help me in my movie. Well, you would say, Phew, there's something seriously wrong with that, too. Yes, there is. Yeah, because all of a sudden, I'm God. I'm sovereign. I'm king. I'm in charge. I'm the star. Right? That's all I need to say. You get what's going to go wrong with this sermon now. So, let me kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Brad Powell... Northridge Church, Plymouth, Michigan, The Script, The Helpers. Here we go. The sermon begins with kind of a thrilling, suspenseful, movie scene type thing. So you catch the Hollywood drift here. Well, it's great to see you here this weekend. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of this series that we're in called The Script. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be moving into the chapter we're looking at this weekend because we're moving from the enemy, somewhat negative, dark chapter last weekend, 
to the helpers, which is a bright and lively and wonderful chapter this weekend. So I, I want to get right to it. So notice the script theme and the chapter theme. This is a literary storytelling movie type of thing all mixed together. The script. So we're moving to a new chapter, the chapter about the helpers. And so I have my iPad cover, but not my iPad Hey, I don't have my iPad. Code Red. I repeat, we have a Code Red. Red has lost his iPad. We've got to recover it. At any cost. Good luck, people. Code Red, man! Let's go! Go, Code Red! Thank you very much for your help. All of that to illustrate how important helpers are to our lives. There would be no talk this weekend without the stage crew, so give them a hand. Thank you very much. Great. Whether you're a guest or a regular tender, this series, the script, really is all about the wonderful life that God has authored for you that so often we're not experiencing because... So God's authored a life for you, and it's in a script, and he's authored it for you, but you're not experiencing it. See, you're the star in the script that God has authored for you. We pick up a pen and try and write our own story, but it never works out well in the end. If we want to experience life as we've been designed to experience it, we have to follow God's script. And the truth Yeah, because you know, God's the big cosmic scriptwriter in the sky, and you're the star. Truth is, you can never ever experience God's story the right way without the right helpers. In fact, mm, yeah, see you can't experience the story, the script, without the helpers. A story is nothing. A story is worthless without the right helpers. And I thought I would just kind of allow you to illustrate the point before we dig deeper into this part of the script by participating in a little fun game with me this weekend. We're going to... So we start off with a movie thing, and then we do a little vignette of Mission Impossible to Recover Your iPad, and now we're going to do a fun little thing. When are we going to get into the biblical text? You know, you got preaching of the God's word that, that you're supposed to be doing. We're going to look at great partnerships 
in stories down through history. And I am now this is an important part of the setup of this sermon. I'm going to give the first name in the partnership, and then you are going to not leave me hanging feeling like an idiot up here. You're going to actually scream out the last name in the partnership. This just shows how important it is to have the right helpers. Great partnerships are required for great stories. All right, you ready? You got it? All right, here, here we go. We'll, we'll start it off this way. David and... You've blown it already. Goliath was not David's partner. Man, you guys just don't listen. Seriously. No wonder we're so off script. That would have been last weekend. He was David's enemy. David's partner was... Jonathan, David and Jonathan. I would have accepted Bathsheba or even Joab, but not Goliath. All right. Now that we've got the partnership idea right, the helper idea right, we'll keep going. Batman and... Absolutely. It just shows if you're going to be a guy that wears tights, you need a helper wearing tights. I mean, no one wants to be alone in their tights. The, the Lone Ranger and... Romeo and... Right, Lewis and that's exactly right. Getting into the 70s a little bit. Starsky and yeah, a little bit of PBS. Bert and for sure. Some Cartoon Network's important. Tom and you gotta enjoy the Criminal Network stories. Bonnie and little dancing. Fred Astaire and that's right. One of my favorites. Rocky and. If you follow this little train of thought to its logical conclusion, it's you and Jesus. He's your co-pilot. He's the guy who has a supporting role in your movie that he scripted for you. And I would have accepted Brad because my wife's name is Rocky. Uh, Roxanne, a little bit of suspense, Sherlock Holmes. You guys, you're bored with this already, aren't you? It's sad because this is the whole talk. This is all I've got for you. I'll end with just two hard ones, uh, a little harder. The Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. And this is the one that seems to be stumping everybody. Statler and... <laughs> really, you haven't had coffee this morning, have you? Really? Statler and Waldorf. They're the two old guys in the balcony with the Muppets, friends. Do you not know great literature? <laughs> if you're a guest here, you're going, seriously? Where's Jesus in all of this, right? Here's the fair question. The point. In every great story, the leading character requires helpers to fulfill their quest. So notice the setup the leading character in your script you're the leading character and you need a helper you're the star in every great adventure the adventurer in order to be successful needs the right helpers now as I was kind of putting together this idea and understanding this reality I knew that there would be people listening to this talk who, like me, would be trying to pick apart the idea. 
And so some of you haven't really heard a word I've said. You're just still thinking of great stories where there were no helpers, right? You're trying to figure it out. And I, I literally spent time in my office going, is there any great story without a helper? Is there any great story? And I, there isn't. Not a great story. In, in fact, even Tom Hanks in The Castaway had to have a helper. I mean, it was a movie where he was all alone. There wasn't even any music. I mean, talk about isolation. But he couldn't have made it without the right helper. Who was it? Wilson. Even if you have to draw a face on a soccer ball. Now I'm going to point something out that should be obvious but needs to be reiterated. He didn't begin with a biblical text. This is not a concept that starts in the scriptures. This is his illustration that he's now going to go and find biblical passages to support the illustration. This is backwards. You, a pastor's to begin in a biblical text, and the sermon illustrations are to help us understand what the text is saying. But here he's begun with his own theology and his own metaphor, his own concept. He's, this, is, this idea does not have its origin in God's word at all. A great story demands the right helpers. We can't make it alone. A story is nothing without the right helpers. Here's the problem. Now listen. Too many of us are trying to live our story alone. Yeah, your story. You're the star. You need a helper. You need, you need a, a co-star. You know, a, a supporting actor. Jesus, you know. And this is why so few of us are experiencing the great story that God has crafted for our lives. Without the right kind of helpers, without embracing the right kind of helpers in our lives, we will never experience the great unfolding of script that God has penned for us. And yet many of us... And you're the star. ...us aren't willing to embrace helpers in our lives. We're, we're wanting to do it alone. We're wanting to be the Lone Ranger without Tonto. We're wanting to do it all by ourselves. And then... There's another problem. We're not willing to be helpers in other people's stories. We're always wanting to be the lead character. We're always wanting to be the people served, helped. We're not ever wanting to enter into another person's story and help them. So it's important that not only you know, do you get helpers in your story, but that you, you offer yourself to help in other people's you know, stories where they're the star too. But the truth is you will never experience the great story that God has for you if you're not willing to come alongside and help. You will never experience the great story that God has for you. Where in the Bible does it promise a great story for me that I can experience in the Bible? Hmm? What is this? Help others because that is the great story that Jesus exemplified. He came to serve, and he sent us to serve. And I have to tell you, this has been, if I'm really honest, a huge problem for me in my life because of the way I'm wired. I really like to do stuff alone. I like to, to compete and to win and to, to be self-sufficient, to think I can do it alone. But the truth is, no story can be done alone. We have to embrace helpers. We have to help others. But this problem isn't new. So let's look at the truth and we'll see how it's unfolded down. Through. I don't care if it's new or not. It's not even biblical. What are you talking about? What, what text did you dig this out of? Through history and then we'll see what we can do to fix it.
But here's the truth I want you to get this weekend. God has included great helpers in the script that he's written for our world. God has included, he has given, he has authored great helpers in the script he's written for each and every one of our lives. And he's done it from the beginning. They've always been available. They just haven't always been embraced. Let me share with you the, the great helpers that God has provided in the big picture of his script. The first one, he's provided his truth. God's truth, God's word. So God's word is the big helper in your story. Which is God's voice has been given to help guide our way. Look at Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of the story, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Adam wouldn't have known unless God had told him. God's the one that wired him up. God didn't send a secondary messenger. God sent his own word to be the helper of humanity so that we might be guided in our way, so we might know what we're doing. The problem isn't that God hasn't given us the help of his word. The problem is that we haven't embraced it. God's also from... That's because we've rebelled against God and we're sinful by nature. From the very beginning, given himself, he has sent his spirit to help make possible and purposeful and meaningful the story that he's crafted for us. We don't have to live it alone. We can have God's help. God's spirit has been given to help us. Look at... Oh, how thankful. That means my story, my movie's going to come out really well. Can I be a superhero? Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife, this is in the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the very beginning heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God has never left us alone. Every great story needs the right helpers. Every great story needs great helpers. And we have been given the greatest helpers, God's own word, his truth, God's own spirit to help guide the way. And then he's given us one other great helper, the right helper for us. He's given us one another. This is a big deal. From the very beginning, he's intended not that we travel alone, not that we live our story alone, but that we do it together with one another. It allows us to help shoulder the burden. He's just spinning stuff out here. He's not actually preaching from a biblical text. He's making stuff up and attributing it to God. Because a great burden becomes no burden at all when we do it together. A small joy can become a great joy when we share it together. Look at how God said we require great helpers. In Genesis 2, in the very beginning, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's just not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him, a partnership. Adam and Eve were there to partner with one another, to be like Batman and Robin. Really? They were to be helping each other and in so doing, experiencing the unfolding of God's script in their lives. God says it again. In a- experiencing the unfolding of God's script. In- Where in Genesis does it talk about the unfolding of God's script in their lives? Hmm? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and no one has to help him up. And yet this is our huge problem. We try and live our story alone. We're, we're writing... No, our problem is sin, that we've rebelled against God. There are clear passages that say this. ...our own story when we live it our, alone, because God has always crafted a story to be done together. 
But it goes all the way back into the beginning. God created the perfect script, the story of life and the story of the world. It's the greatest script ever written with perfect helpers. But it has seldom been experienced because like... Yeah, see, you lose at life if you haven't experienced the great script that was written for you, the movie star of your own life. Like us, our predecessors on this planet chose to walk away from God's story chose to walk away and to live without the helpers that God provided. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked away from God's truth. He said, don't eat from the tree. And what did they do? They ate from the tree. Well, that wasn't part of the script. He said, it's not good to be alone. But what did they do? They hid from each other, and they started blaming one another for the problems that they had caused. Instead of shouldering the burden of their failure together, they started blaming each other. They set the agenda for us, and they rejected God's spirit. They pushed him out. When he came down, they hid behind bushes. They didn't want to be close to him anymore. They rejected God's helpers. Are are you reading the same story from Genesis 3 that I'm reading? I mean, seriously, they rejected God's spirit, and they didn't want to be close to God anymore. You've got to be kidding me, right? And it didn't end with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the beginning of Act 1. But as you move into Act 1, and if you're new to the series, Act 1 is the Old Testament. And I really encourage you to go back and watch at least the first talk in the series. It's online. We give it away. We'd love for you to catch up to it. But in Act 1, following Adam and Eve, the same story happens over and over and over again. God writes the script. God sends the helpers. And they continually push him away. For example, he sends his spirit time and time again. His spirit has always been available to help empower us. Look at Numbers chapter... Mm, Always available to help empower us, but our problem is is that we don't recognize it as a helper and we just push it away. Mm -hmm. 11 verse 17, he's talking to Moses. This is just one example of many in in Act 1 in the Old Testament. God says, I'll come down, Moses, and I'll speak with you there. Because I'm always present. I'm always there to help you. Talk about a great helper. And I'll, I'll take of the spirit, my spirit that is on you, and I'll put the spirit on other. Now notice he's not actually reading any texts here. He's just summarizing something from out of context to support his theology. But this isn't biblical theology. Others. And those others will then help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. This is how God's story's always been. He's made it to be lived, not as a solo experience, but as a partnership. And he's given us his spirit, he's given us his word, and he's given us other people who can shoulder the burdens and share the joys. I mean, that's how it was back then. Look at how he gives his truth. First Samuel 15.10, I'll just give one example. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. That's one of the most popular phrases in the Old Testament. Then the word of the Lord came, then the word of the Lord came, then the word of the Lord came. He's always given his spirit. Yeah, see, the reason why the word of the Lord came is so that, you know, so that, you know, Samuel can have a helper as he experienced God's great script for his life. And he's always given his truth, and he's always given others. I mean, in the Old Testament, he was giving kings who were supposed to lead people in God's truth according to God's spirit. He gave prophets who were empowered by God's spirit to lead people to God's truth. They had all the right helpers. And yet Israel, God's people, kept walking away from the helpers. They kept pushing God's spirit away, kept pushing God's word away, kept pushing the prophets and kings away. And they chose to live their own stories. Could this have anything to do with man's sinfulness and rebellion against God? I mean, just, you know, I'm hazarding a guess here. 
and God said it wouldn't work, and it never did. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16. Israel, God's people, the subject of the story in Act 1, mocked God's messengers. God sent these helpers, and they mocked... Yeah, the calling the prophets just helpers, it kind of misses the whole point. The prophets were called were calling Israel to repent of their idolatry and their worship of false gods and their sinfulness and to be forgiven by God. The prophets were not guys sitting there wringing their hands going, hey, listen, God's got a great script for your life. He's got this wonderful story. He wants you to experience it. I'm here to help you. Please let me help you. That's not what they were doing. Them. They despised God's words and scoffed at the prophets that God had sent to help them. And they did it until the anger, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people and there was no remedy. So God's mad if you don't accept his helpers. So God has been sending life since the very beginning to all mankind and he's he's been sending it through his people. And he's given to his people, helpers, his spirit, his word and others, but they keep pushing him away and so they keep failing. And you know it's even more sad. Many of the helpers that God has sent, like the kings and the prophets in the Old Testament, weren't helpers at all because they too walked away from God and started serving their own interests. They too walked away from his word, started serving their own interests. The story of God hasn't been experienced because we haven't embraced his helpers. But it doesn't end with Act 1. Then we move into Act 2. And Jesus comes and he kicks it all off and he provides the perfect example. And in Act 2, we... Jesus provides the perfect example. Uh-oh. We're, we're given the whole idea that what was supposed to be done in Act 1 but didn't happen could be done in Act 2. And yet it's the same story. When you read the Bible, Act 2, which is the New Testament, is the same story over and over again. God's given his perfect helpers to each and every one of us so that we could experience the life that he intended for us. Jesus says in John 10.10, I've come to give you life and life in the full. God's still sending life to all of mankind. His people are still the subject of the story, now embodied by the church, as we've seen in this series. And God sends his helpers, but we keep pushing. No, his people are not the subject of the story. Jesus is the subject of the story. This is narcissus, narcissetical eisegesis, and it's got everything all wrong. Pushing his helpers away so we don't experience life. If you're wondering why you're not experiencing life in all of its fullness, it's because you're not following the script. Because you see, God has sent the great helpers everything you need to live the story. He has sent you. He sent his word. He's given you every word you need, every part of his voice you need to live out the story. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. It's living and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in right living and righteousness so that the man of God, the person that's living God's story, can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have every word from God we need to live his story. And yet, what do we do? This is all law, no gospel. Do We keep saying, I don't have enough from God. I need to hear from God. Why? How come God's not speaking? The reason we need different words from God is because we want him to fit into the story that we're writing for our lives. He hasn't spoken into the story that we're writing. 
But he's given us every word we need to live the story. Where are you getting this information from? Because it's not found in the Bible. He's written. When I find myself lacking the words from God that I need to live my life, that's a clear sign that it's because I'm trying to live out a different story than he's written for me. And the same is true for you. He sent his helpers. He sent his word. And we can be equipped for every good work. We have every word we need from him. We just have to embrace it. And yet, what do we do in this world? Because of the influence of the enemy, because of our own bad choices, we push his word away. Bad choices. Oh, yeah, that's what sin is, just bad choices. Yeah, we're making a bunch of bad choices, and we're victims of the enemy, you know. And we decide to go our own way, and that's when we're missing instructions for life. John eight thirty two. Jesus spoke into this. He says, you will know the truth. God has sent his truth. And when you embrace his truth, the truth will set you free. The reason we're not experiencing the freedom of life and all of its fullness is because we've rejected God's help, his word. He's also in act two, given us his spirit. I mean, we have the greatest helper in the universe. God's spirit is here to empower us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to, to give us meaning. Look at how Jesus said it in John 14, verses... To give us meaning. Wow. Verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another helper. You might want to circle that word helper, because God's Spirit is your helper, if you'll embrace him. I've given you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. It's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Notice all the verses taken out of context. You cannot. This is not a coherent biblical thought because he's not exegeting passages. He's just hopscotching along in, in the Bible, ripping a passage here, ripping a passage there, and making it all about you. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. God has sent his great helper, his spirit. Now, as an aside, just a second ago, I said you might want to circle the word helper, to which some of you were saying, well, I'd be glad to circle it, but you don't give me outlines anymore. <laughs> I, I, I heard your snickering during the drama. I heard it. A little bit of cheering going on. Curiosity, how many of you missed the outlines? Change is hard, isn't it? You know, just because you don't get an outline doesn't mean you can't circle the word helper. I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you never knew. But there's this thing called a Bible, and it's got words in it. And you could circle it right in the Bible itself. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not a very good helper, am I? <laughs> Look at John 16:13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Spirit of God has been given to help guide us into all truth, to help us understand God's way. He will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. God has scripted a story for our lives, which is a story that will lead us to the fullness of life he's designed for us, to experience everything in life he wants us to, so that we might live to his pleasure and to his glory. And he's given us the Spirit to do it. The reason we're not experiencing it is because we're trying to do it on our own. We're trying to... Do it without the Spirit, without His Word. And there's one last great helper in every story that God's ever crafted for us in Act 2 as well. It's the story of one another. 
God has given us one another to help, to encourage, to comfort, to serve, to love, to lift up. But unfortunately, we shut each other out and we try and compete with one another instead of cooperate with one another. And this is why Jesus said what he said in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, since you've missed it from the beginning, since you missed it in Act 1, I'm telling you, if you're going to experience God's story in Act 2, you need to get a hold of this. A new command I give you. Love one another. Where's the gospel here? I mean, what did Jesus... Oh, that's right. Jesus was just the example. Got it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. We need to love one another. Because it's in loving one another that we help one another. It's in helping one another that we start experiencing the great story of God in our lives. Can I point something out? The fact that people will know us by our love shows that that's what we do with our new natures. You don't try to have a new nature by loving The fact that you love shows that you have a new nature. You've got this all backwards. Look at how it says in Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers, and whenever the Bible says my brothers or brothers and sisters, it's referring to those people who are in the family of God through faith in Christ. You, my brothers, were called to be free. I mean, God's word sets you free. God's spirit sets you free. So do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, use your freedom and your fullness of life to serve one another in love. The reason we're not serving one another in love is because we're not experiencing the fullness of life that God's authored for us. And so we can't give to others because we're so empty, we're just going to take from others. And this is the problem with our world. Our stories are all about what we're going to take from the world and take from others because we're so empty, we need it. But God's story is, I give you all the life you need and when you're experiencing the fullness of life I'm giving you, then you can serve one another and you can unfold the great script I've written. But once again, we see the problem time and time again in Act 2. In our story, God's people the subject of his story, who are supposed to be taking life in all of its fullness to all of mankind. No, the people are not the subject of his story. God, Jesus Christ, is the subject of the story. Kind, God's people, the ones commissioned to experience life and to know it and to deliver it, fail. Just like they did in... Commissioned to experience life. Provide one verse that says that. Act one, because they walk away from and they seek to live without God's helpers. And this is the great disappointment of God. I mean, Jesus himself spoke with great pathos of his disappointment at how we kept living the story without God's helpers. Look at Matthew 23, verse 37. This is the great tragedy in the story. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's a reference to God's people. It's the symbol of God's people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, the helpers that God has sent to direct you, you who stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. How often I've wanted to unfold the whole story in your life, but you were not willing. 
Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Through Paul, God says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to now a different gospel, a different truth, which is no gospel truth at all. Yeah, this entire sermon has no gospel truth in it. It is a different gospel. It is not the biblical gospel. God wants to unfold the script that he's written for you, but you can't turn away his helpers because he wants you, he's commissioned you to experience life. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. So you need to look to Jesus's example so that you can have God unfold his script in your life. False gospel. This whole thing is a false gospel. You and I are not the center of the story. We're the perpetrators. We've sided with the evil guy. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. You're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You're trying to live without helpers, but in so doing... Live without helpers. You just put that into the text. It's not in there. You're being helped by the wrong people. You're being destroyed. And so people weren't embracing God's word. They weren't embracing God's truth. They weren't embracing one another. And it even got worse. Just like the kings and prophets in Act 1 of the Old Testament, though we're called to help others to find joy and love and life in God's story. We refuse to help others. And this is why the story of God's broke down. If you're wondering why the world doesn't seem to measure up to God's story, it's because the world isn't measuring up to God's story. Because the world is rejecting everything God sent. Yeah, because the world's rejecting all of the helpers. I mean, God just wants them to have the most amazing story, you know, and for them to experience it. But, you know, they refuse his helpers. To make it possible. Now, so far, it's pretty sad. And the truth is, if you read the Bible without understanding the whole story, it's a sad book. It's one of devastation. It's one of death and destruction and darkness and abuse and hatred and conflict and war. And so many people look at that and say, how could this be God's story? It's not God's story. It's God showing us how we're living against his story and the tragedy of it. But here's the good news. This is great news. That Christ died for our sins? Please tell me that's what's next. Our failures don't have to be final. Why? Because Jesus came. And he lived out God's story perfectly. Oh, the characters in Act 1 didn't. And we aren't... Yes, he did. He lived the law perfectly for us, right? And his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. The way Philippians 3 says, right, 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 right in Act 2, but Jesus created a bridge for Act 1 participants and Act 2 participants by living out God's story perfectly. You know what he did? He resisted the enemy perfectly and he embraced God's helpers perfectly. I mean, what? Where are you getting any of this? I mean, he lived by God's spirit perfectly. He lived by God's word perfectly and he embraced others perfectly. He let them into his life. In fact, just read the first chapter of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's, I'm reading Mark over and over and over right now. And just to really embrace the, the life and message of Jesus. And, and in Mark chapter 1, Jesus shows up. And you know what he does at his baptism? The Spirit comes down and he opens his life to be directed by God's Spirit. God speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he embraces God's word and lives every word that God ever authored. He embraces God's helpers. And John the Baptist baptizes him. He's the creator of the world, is allowing others to help him because even he, living on this planet, needs the right helpers. And then he 
became the right helper and even died. <laughs> what is this? Died for the world, for us. His is the story. And you know what the result is? That Jesus came and lived out the perfect story? The result is our failures don't have to be final. The result is we can put our pens down, we can stop writing our failed stories, and we can get back on God's script. But we have to make the choice. We have to start embracing what we have been rejecting. We have to embrace the helpers that God has given us. So what does this look like? If you really want to experience God's story, what does it look like? Well, then unlike those in Act 1 and the majority in Act 2, here's what we need to do. We need to follow Jesus. We need to accept God's word, embrace it as our guide for life. In Acts chapter 2. Embrace it as our guide for life. Yeah, It is so much more than that. Oh, man. The book of Acts in the Bible, chapter 2. Act 2 begins the season of the story that we're in. And in Act 2, what happens is Peter stands up and he proclaims the truth of Jesus' perfect story. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection to all that were gathered there. And then at the end, he says, if you want to know this story, if you don't want your failures to be final, if you want to live out God's story, then you have to repent, put down your pen, and stop writing your story. And you need to put your faith in Jesus and start embracing his story. And look what Acts chapter 2... Yeah, he said something about the forgiveness of sins there in Acts 2. Don't you think that might have something to do with the Jesus story, the forgiveness of sins? 2 verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message, those who finally stopped rejecting God's word but accepted God's word, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people went from death to life on that day. Why? Because they finally accepted God's helper. They finally accepted God's word. And this is where we have to start. It's not about accepting religion. It's about accepting God's truth, which can set you free. Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who received Jesus, his message, his life, his story, to those who put their faith in his name, they, gave, they were given the right to become brothers and sisters, to become children of God. And so the starting place is to accept his word if you're going to live his story. Now, there's plenty of time. There, I'm not even close to done with this talk. I'm sorry. Man, I wish you were because you're totally mangling the Jesus story. This doesn't resemble anything that even sounds like Christian theology or doctrine. But there's no sense in moving forward until you're given the opportunity to accept his word because everything that comes now requires that you accept his word, his message, his story as yours. And so I'm going to ask you if you'd just bow with me in a word of prayer just for a minute. And just, it's a quiet moment. Relax in this moment. But if you're here and you've never accepted his message... Do it now, like the 3,000 in Act 2. Let him give you life in all of its fullness. Just say, God, I've been writing the wrong story. I've been trying to do life without your truth, without your way. And I've sinned against you. But right now, I'm rejecting my story. And I'm accepting yours. I, I'm 
What exactly is this prayer supposed to accomplish? Confessing my sin, and I'm putting my faith on Jesus. What's a sin? Jesus, please forgive me through his death. And please give me... He ha- you haven't explained what a sin is and how his death addresses sin, sir. You're talking about scripts and movies and me and the people of God being the center of the story rather than Jesus. A new life through his resurrection. I'm trusting you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed with me, I, I just really want to encourage you just to let us know. We've put together a letter that can give you some next steps that you can take. It's just a simple way we can help guide you into next steps. If you're watching online, you can do it with, what do I do next? It's a button right there on the website. But if you're here in one of our live services, we have these programs. And inside these programs we hand you, we have a connection card. And all you have to do is fill the thing out. And on the bottom it says, today I prayed to receive Jesus in my life. You check that off so we can know what you did. And you throw it in one of the boxes as you leave. Did they understand what they were praying? I mean, seriously. Our camps are you just hand it to a guest service person and we're going to send you a letter about next steps you can take that'll help you to engage your relationship with God but with that once we accept his word that's the first helper that we've been rejecting in God's story which is why we don't experience it but if we really want to live God's story then we have to embrace the other great helper we have to submit to God's spirit we can't just accept his word we then have to submit to god's spirit because god's spirit is the one that enables and empowers us to live god's way we can't do it on our own look at how galatians chapter 5 verses 16 22 and 23 says it. it says so i say live by the spirit i mean submit to him live in him walk in dependence on him and this is what will happen If you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You'll stop writing your own messed up story. But instead, the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit produces in those who submit to Him, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you know what nine characteristics are essential for the perfect story? Love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you know what's missing in our stories, the ones that we write? Do you know what we're pursuing in pursuing whatever we pursue? I think that almost made sense. Do you know what we're pursuing when we pursue stuff, whether it's money or pleasure or hobbies or power or whatever? We're pursuing those characteristics because we're longing for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the life that God breathed into us in the beginning. That's the life that God the sender is sending to all mankind. This is the life that his people are supposed to be reflecting and experiencing and delivering to the world. This is the life that the enemy is fighting against, but this is the life that God's helpers are trying to embolden in us and his word and his spirit lead to this kind of life, but we'll never have it unless we submit to his spirit. Submit to him. Live in him. Give him ownership. And then it goes one step further. If we're going to unfold God's script in our lives, then as we accept his word and submit to his spirit, we have to do one last thing that so many people don't. So many people, even who claim to accept his word and submit to his spirit, don't do this. You, you cannot live out God's story unless you commit to one another. You can't do it. 
There is no great story. I, I notice in the prayer, it mentions something about Jesus' death, but he didn't explain any of it. Where is the gospel here? Without partnership. We need to commit to one another. That's why Hebrews 10.24 says, embrace each other. Stir each other up to love and good works. Otherwise, you won't be about love and good works. Don't stop getting together as so many have, but rather get together and encourage one another. Commit to one another. You should read all the New Testament and, and find all the places where it says one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. It talks about love one another, comfort one another, serve one another, accept one another, honor one another, build one another up. The story of God unfolds when we commit to one another, when we embrace, embrace others' help. I have got, had to get to the place in my life, if I want to experience God's story, where I've realized I can't do it alone. I need you. I need you. This is it's not... What do you mean you can't do it alone? You can't do it at all. I want you. I need you in my life. And you need me. We need each other. And that takes commitment. And once we start experiencing the unfolding of God's story this way, what happens is we start experiencing the life that God wants for us, this life of fullness where we're the light of the world. And then what are we supposed to do as we commit to one another? We're supposed to commit to helping others. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where he kind of shows what happens when you're really living his story. And he uses the human body as an example. He says, in fact, God has arranged all the parts in the body Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? You have to read the text. But what he's basically saying is, what good's a head without a neck? I've seen that Star Trek episode. Who wants to be a brain in a bottle, really? What good's a neck without shoulders? What good are shoulders without a waist? What good are knees without a hips and ankle and I know I've missed some parts along the way there somewhere but a body's nothing unless it has all these different parts and then look what he says as it is there are many parts but one body now you are the body of Christ now he's taking what he's trying to send into this world and he's saying you have to commit to one another because you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it which means as a head is nothing without a neck so we are nothing without one another notice Every passage is all imperatives, but no indicatives. Nothing about really what Christ has done for us. You just got to, you 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 got to. And out of context, this isn't Christian sanctification. This is actually a formula for self-righteousness. Big difference, though. You know why so many of us aren't experiencing the great story that God's promised? It's because we're trying to experience it without each other, and it doesn't work. Here's the wrong story. Selfishness. Where I want to take from others, but I'm not giving myself to others. That's the kingdom of me. It never works. Here's the right story. Unselfishness, as displayed by Jesus. It's what I want for you. He says, I didn't come to get you serving me. I came to serve humanity. That's the kingdom of God. The question is, have you done that yet? I believe that the Bible makes very, very clear that our lives will never, ever express or experience God's story until we've decided to become the great helpers in other people's lives. The greatest stories are the stories with the greatest helpers. 
This is why we began. So I'm being saved not from God's wrath, not from hell, but from having a bad experience in my story. And this talk the way we did with me not having my iPad and there was no way I could go forward without the stage crew coming to my aid because the truth is nothing unfolds without great helpers. Nothing. And yet most of us, and, and I'm not being mean, I'm just being honest, most of us have not committed to being great helpers in other people's lives. At best, we've committed to let other people help us become great. That's what's gotten this world in trouble. We're all willing to use other people. No, no, no. What got us in trouble is we rebelled against God. We disobeyed him. And we, pl- we were plunged into sin as a result of that. People to become great ourselves. But not, we're not willing to become the great helpers in other people's story. And realize every story where I'm the lead character is a story that I've written. Because in God's story, there's only one lead character. And his name is Jesus Christ. And all of us are supposed to be great helpers in his story. And that's when we experience the unfolding of the story of God. That's when we experience life in its fullness. And yet so many people claiming to follow him are trying to use others to become great but aren't willing to help others. We need to be helpers. And so I thought this would be a great time to help picture this in a practical way. God's doing great things here at Northridge. This is just one church. There are many churches in our community around the world where God's doing great things, but we're here and God is doing great things at Northridge. But the great things God is doing here only happens because so many people have chosen the right story, what I want for you. They've decided, I'm going to be a great helper in another person's life, and that's how we exist. And I just thought the best way to do it would just be to kind of show you statistics. And this is for all three of our campuses. We're one church in three locations, and so it's covering all three of our campuses. But do you know how this church functions? I'll start with... Uh, the weekend service right here. In fact, everything I'm going to talk about at first is just the weekends. What it takes for the weekend at Northridge. What God does here on the weekend to happen. Our creative arts team. That's our music and our production and our stage and our tech and our video teams. You know, the people who brought out the iPad. You know how many volunteers every weekend it takes just in here to do the creative aspects? 80 volunteers every Yeah, we've heard more about your church now than we have about Jesus. Every single weekend, weekend after weekend after weekend, 52 weekends a year. Discovery Island, we can't do weekend services at Northridge without our kids' ministry, Discovery Island. Do you you know how many volunteers? These aren't people who get paid. These are people who say, I want to be a great helper in the story of God that unfolds here. Do you know how many volunteers it takes to do Discovery Island so that you who have kids can be in here? 400 every weekend. 400. And that's every weekend. And obviously, everyone can't work every weekend. And so we're talking 800, 1,200 volunteers, the great opportunities to serve that way. That's how it happens. Our guest service team, you know, the greeters and the parking and the ushers and the security and the first aid people. You might not know, we have a first aid volunteer team. I mean, why? Because some of you come in and have heart attacks here. And I want you to know, we believe in excellence here. We want to make sure we save at least one out of every ten of you that has a heart attack. (laughs) 
high goals we're setting for ourselves. And so we have a first aid team and all volunteers. It takes every weekend, every weekend, 344 volunteers to fill our guest service teams out. Food services. Food services is a big one. Yeah, I'm clapping for that one too. Um, you realize I've been looking around as I've been giving this talk this weekend and some of you have been sleeping. I get it. You don't think I see, but I do. But most of you aren't sleeping and it's because... We have volunteers serving coffee here. I wish I had fallen asleep. I would have enjoyed the sermon a lot more. And I'm telling you, thank God for them, huh? 56 volunteers serving coffee and food. And then our resource center and starting point and student ministries. And we have people who are, you know, investing as volunteers and cleaning the, the facilities here. All total, every weekend, just for the weekend. We need 1,058 volunteers to do ministry here and have them. Why? Because they've chosen the right story. And then non-weekend, we have small group and outreach around the world and stewardship and women's ministries and care. and legit. I mean, we, we literally every week outside of the weekend need another 1,000 plus volunteers. And we have them. Why? Because people understand that the story of God isn't about writing a story for them. It's about writing a story for God through others. So here's the question, and I'm being very serious now. Which story have you chosen? There, there was a family, I got a text last night, it just it kind of saddened me. I, I got a text last night as I was going home, and there was a family here, no judgment, no names, don't even know them, don't even know what they look like, but a big family, about five or six of them, I guess, and um, they got up to leave, someone texted me, and they had all kinds of coffee cups and food services, and they took advantage. It was all there. And the mom said, hey, pick up all those cups. Let's take it out. And one of the kids said, why would we take this stuff out and deprive the people who are volunteering to clean the auditorium of their ministry? <laughs> this is at this point in the talk. They had heard the whole thing. And they all laughed, and they walked out and left their crap in the auditorium. I think they might have missed the point. <laughs> what story have you chosen? Who and how are you serving and helping others? And it doesn't have to be here. It has to be in life. You're gifted. There are opportunities. You need to choose to step into your gift and the opportunity. And this is why, because not everyone knows how they can serve and get involved. We put in your program here at our campuses this thing. We didn't want you to mistake what this was about. It says volunteer on the front. It's not too tough. On the back it says step up, look up, sign up. Step up. Choose the right story. Look up. All you have to do is go online, northridgechurch.com slash volunteers, and see all the tons of opportunities. They're not needs. We're not saying... Our organization needs you to serve. We don't want anything from you. We're saying you need to serve for you. And we're creating here all kinds of opportunities for you to experience the unfolding of making a difference in someone's life. What are those opportunities? And then sign up where you can take a test drive. You don't have to commit for a lifetime. You take a test drive and you experience a ministry. It can change your world. And then on the bottom of that card, on the back side, we talk about Discover Your Style. We actually teach a seminar here where we help you understand your giftings and your wirings and how that 
looks in serving others and, and how that might fit here. And the next one's coming February 25th. We'd love for you to take that. But the key is, choose the right story. Here's the conclusion of the whole gig. When you embrace God's helpers in your life, And you choose to become one of God's helpers in other people's lives by serving. It's then that you experience the unfolding of God's story. It's then that you enjoy the fullness of life he came to give you. So realize this. And what if I'm satisfied with my life the way it is? So realize this. Choosing God's story makes you a part of something bigger than yourself. The reason so many of us feel that we're living such small lives is because we're writing such small stories based totally on the temporary. But when you join God's story, you become a part of something bigger than yourself. It goes beyond the temporary to the eternal. So don't rob yourself of the opportunity. Get involved in God's story. And know this, there are two endings to the story of your life. The one that you write and the one that God writes. The story ending that God writes is a story where we experience for all eternity life. The story that we write, we experience death now and death forever. And so next weekend what we're going to do is we're going to look at the end of the story and what God's written for you but the tragedy you can write for yourself, and then you can make a choice. I hope you'll come and invite others. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Now, here's the problem with the whole thing. He wasn't actually engaging in biblical teaching. He was cherry-picking law passages, imperatives, missed all the indicatives, didn't tell the story of Jesus, and his metaphor kept getting in the way. And what I mean by that is I can't figure out what the heck I'm supposed to do at this point. You know, I, okay, so God has a story he wants me to experience, but I've been writing my own story, so I need to uh, I need to make a decision about whose story I'm going to go with, God's story or my story, and, and that means I need to volunteer at church. And, and yeah. He didn't tell the story of Jesus. He did not tell the story of our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. He, I don't know, I mean, and... What is it exactly does it mean to embrace the helpers? I mean, I, I got to go embrace helpers. I I don't know where they are, but I got to go find them quick so I can embrace them because I don't want to, I don't you know want a bad experience in my in my script to the, you know where I'm the star to you know and because I not I need helpers in, in my movie and then I got to help people in their movies because if I don't then I'm not choosing the right story and <sighs> knock it off. Put away the cute illustrations, open the biblical text, and let God's Word preach. Let it teach. God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't need your help. He needs you to open up your mouth and preach the Word. You you get what I'm saying here? Put away all the cute stuff, and let's get back to the basics. Preach the Word. This wasn't preaching the Word. This was a relevant life tip sermon run amok where the illustration literally overshadowed any biblical teaching to the point where I don't I don't even know what it is that he he was telling me we need to be doing. And what he did say we need to be doing doesn't sound like what the Bible really tells us we need to be doing. It sounded like something different, something very legalistic, Pelagian at best. Got it? All right. 
Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And just a reminder, it's listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website. We truly do need your help and your financial support to keep doing what we're doing. And thank you to those of you who are supporting us. So what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.